Hello, friends, and welcome to the Hourglass Podcast. I'm Christina Dees, and I'm your host. Join me as we explore the lives of entrepreneurs and side hustlers who are doing what they love, living the dream, so to speak. Each episode features an in-depth conversation with a guest about their founding story and how they got to where they are today. Hey, friends, welcome back to the Hourglass Podcast. I'm your host, Christina Dees. We have a very special guest joining us, someone who has truly embraced the power of resilience and transformed their struggles into a remarkable future. MT Bottles is not just a comedian or trivia enthusiast, but a true inspiration to all. Through his wit and humor, MT has captured the hearts of audiences, leaving them in stitches during his comedy gigs. If you're looking for a good laugh, MT Bottles is the go-to person. But that's not all. He's also a trivia aficionado, ready to challenge and entertain with mind-boggling facts and questions. MT Bottles is an entertainer based in Wilmington, North Carolina. As a full-time MC, host, and stand-up comedian, he is known for hosting some of the best trivia nights in Wilmington. He's also a two-time Port City Top Comic finalist, and MT continues to grow his fan base through his undeniable charm and the telling of his absolutely ridiculous life experiences. To stay up to date on his upcoming performances and events or to book a comedy show or a trivia night with him, you can check out his website, mtbottles.com. Beyond his entertainment talents, MT has some valuable advice to share. His best piece of wisdom is a reminder for all listeners to bet on themselves, especially when it feels like no one else will. He also says time is an illusion and it's never too late. Don't let time hold you back. So get ready for an inspiring, laughter-filled conversation as we dive deep into the incredible story and achievements of MT Bottles. All right, MT. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy that you're here. Yeah. Uh, a, a lot of people maybe haven't heard you yet. Maybe they have, but if they haven't, they're missing out. I would agree with that. Yeah. I think that's a proper sentiment in this case. For sure. Yeah. So you're a local comedian. Yeah. You actually haven't been on the circuit that long. No, no. I uh, I started in September um, just as a way to kind of hype up my trivia business. And uh, I wanted people to come out and join me uh, when I ask a lot of questions. And uh, that kind of morphed into uh, a paid gig in January. And then ever since then, I've been doing my thing. And people have allowed me to, to be me in front of them all the time. So yeah. yeah. So tell me, when did you first realize you wanted to be a comic? I've loved comedy since I can remember. Um, I remember watching, when I was a kid, I would watch Evening at the Improv, uh, Caroline's. Like, I constantly watched A&E before it was really, like, A&E, you know, the old-school arts and entertainment channel. Um, I used to watch the old comedy network, Ha. Um, I loved everybody. I mean, Paula Poundstone, Rita Rudner, uh, Whoopi Goldberg. Arsenio Hall, like all these comedians I would see on a regular basis, I loved watching them, loved kind of emulating them when I'm at home. Uh, My mom actually wrote my first stand-up set when I was in kindergarten. Um, I was five years old, it was for a talent show, and the winning joke was uh, why the chicken crossed the road. To get to the other side. No, it was to get away from Junior Suber because that boy loved chicken. (laughs) Junior Suber, of course, being my older brother, who was also in the auditorium when that was spoken. And now to this day, 36 years later, people still make fun of him for that joke. So that's what you call a joke that's everlasting. And also, my brother will never be able to get himself from, from under that. So I'm very pleased about it. And does he still love chicken? 
Oh, he very much loves chicken. He just can't eat it in public anymore because people make fun of him. <laughs> they shame him. Yep. Chicken shame. Yep. He has a big redder, letter C, like it's all in red on his chest all the time. Does he dress up like a chicken for Halloween? No, no. He just looks like that in my mind. So, yeah, yeah. That's what I was envisioning, too. Exactly. Like turning into one. You got it. What about mentors? Like, who do you look up to? In real life? Um, yeah, in real life. In real life, Brian Granger, who is from Wilmington, um, is a big influence for me. Um, he, his stage presence, uh, his process. I've known Brian personally for quite a few years now, um, and he just... Meeting him initially was one thing, and that was very special because he just has this kind of aura about him. But then watching him work is a whole other experience. Um, he's amazing. Wills Maxwell is another one that's here who I really look up to. Um, he has this normal, so to speak, life in a manner of speaking, but he, he also transfers that into the absurd and lets people, you know, kind of take this look into this peek into his life every day and his weird little mind and how he kind of processes everything um and then my third really here in wilmington uh lou morganti who um i remember going to the old dead crow comedy room some time ago and watching him work and he can be chill he can be soulful and then he can be the most animated person in the very next second um, and I always appreciated that about him just from a comedic standpoint, but then he's also another big guy. I'm a big dude too. And to see him use those, all of his attributes in one space, um, was always significant for me. So, um, he actually got me my first paid gig. He, he saw me one night at Dead Crow and, and thought I was good enough to be on one of his shows. And, um, I'm forever grateful for that. He, he saw something that he liked and, um, he started me kind of on this path. So. so what would you say that makes you unique as a comic? Like what sets you apart from other comics? It's definitely my story. Um, I, every, everyone, every human being has a story of some sort, and comics certainly have their own stories um, that they love to tell for the most part. Um, for me, I, I'm very fortunate to have had uh, life experiences that I think a lot of other people, especially in comedy and especially younger people in comedy, they haven't, but maybe they haven't had those or, or hopefully for their sake and in most cases they'll never have them. Um, you know, I grew up in North Carolina. I um, was raised by a single mother and my dad passed when I was very young. Um, and I saw my older siblings go away to college and do very well and I was on that same path. Um, but when I got to college, I wanted to do everything but any schoolwork. So I was a sports editor for the paper. I was a sports anchor on television. Um, I was in student government. And then I threw, you know, ridiculous parties. So that was, I mean, really, that fits in well in the political landscape now. Um, so if you want to think of it that way, I was really ahead of my time in politics. But, um, and that's really what, where my focus was. I wanted to be a politician. And, um we got through all of that, and I went through all these different, you know, hardships, and all of a sudden the pandemic hit, and like, oh, all right, I guess I'll host trivia, and then here I am on a microphone again, and then here comes comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Did you finish college? Nope. No. I should, because there's only like 18 hours left. People are always like, you didn't do that last semester, and I'm like, it's a long story. That's no. the last year. Cause it, well, wait, if it's nine credits a semester. No, where I went to school, it's 18, the full load is 18 hours in a semester. Oh, okay. And that's all I had left to knock out. Um, but, you know, I like taking my time on things. 
I'm very, uh, I like to be real. I want to make sure that I'm doing what I feel like I'm supposed to be doing. So maybe I'll go back and spend another 30 grand. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, how does that translate to your love life? Same thing? Uh, yeah, I definitely have gotten to a place where I'm taking things a lot more slowly. Um, I'm divorced, and that is a whole other experience. Married life and then married life to a person or in a situation where it definitely is not a happy place, and it's also it's not congruent. Like, you just can't, the, the, the two things, the two people, just opposing forces all the time. Coming out of that, um, my trust button was very much broken, and so now um, I think I look at things from a 30,000-foot view all the time. Um, which maybe it may limit me in some cases when it comes to my love life, but I don't mind. I want to be sure. I like being sure about things. Um, I'm actually kind of seeing someone right now, and we're in that stage of, okay, do we keep going, or what What should we do? We kind of like each other, we think, and, you know, there's all those things. So Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how do, you, how do you think you'll know when you know? That's a good question. Um, I have always been led by my heart, so I always felt like I, I'm, I'm very spiritual, so I'm like, I, I would get this just this burning, and I'm like, that's it. It's there. I can feel it. And I start telling my boys, and I'm like, yep, this is it. This is the one we're going with. Um, You're like, I'm hanging up my jersey. Yeah, yeah, game. yeah. Put it in the rafters. Um, <laughs> but then, like Jordan with the 4-5, here I am back on the streets, and... <laughs> I I realize now I'm like, you know what? I think this is definitely more transactional. So, um, you know, I'm fine with working it all the way down. You know, I like telling the story. Um, I think moving forward with any relationship, we'll write up something, have it notarized. Um, you know, if she, uh, I'll rub her feet five nights a week, um, you know, and then she'll buy the groceries. All right. And she lets me eat a cheeseburger while watching her get out of the shower. I'll pay the phone bill. You know, I think that's kind of where uh, my interests lie moving forward. I'm too old for the mess, so, you know. No, I think it's good to be transparent. Yeah, right? exactly. I, exactly. I feel like that's how it should be. Should Everything be. on the table. Yeah. yeah. It's like, hey, this is what I want and I need. Yep. These are my boundaries. Exactly. If you can't meet them, yep. let's call it. This is who I am. But if you can, let's do this thing. Exactly. Could not have said it any better. I agree yeah. with you. Yeah, yeah well. That's where I am in my life, too. I dig it. <laughs> I dig it. All right. Well, let's dive in. Um, you know, one of the first topics we we're going to talk about is comedy as a mirror. Mm -hmm. And don't think I might not go back to your personal life. Oh, no, no. Please do. It's all on the table. I get it. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I think we, we're in a place now where um, obviously there's so many things going on. I mean, it, this all of this this initial part of my... Uh, conversation here is going to be a little bit cheesy and a little bit canned probably, but it, it doesn't make it any less true. I mean, there are a lot of violent things going on. There are a lot of extreme dynamics that are happening. I mean, even when we talk about space exploration, I mean, we just launched, you know, this massive telescope with a massive mirror that's supposed to look into galaxies, you know, further away than we ever imagined or even thought of. Um, there are a lot of things that are happening all at the same time right now, and I think they, a lot of us are taking things, number one, very personally, um, a lot more personally than we ever did. And, of course, we can attribute that to, you know, several things like social media or whatnot. Um, but because we're all so sped up in our own personal news cycles all the time, 
um, we're not laughing a lot. We're not being, we're not taking that time to enjoy those small aspects of life that we all really do share. Um, you know, I might be this uh, poor black boy from North Carolina, but that doesn't mean that you know a, a wealthy um, Caucasian man from California doesn't share some of the same experiences. I mean, the, people always say you know we put on pants the same way, one leg at a time, but. You know, a lot of us eat cereal. A lot of us have to pump our own gas. A lot of us have to, you know, go shopping for shoes. There are a lot of different little things in life that we all do share, and there are funny moments that come in those times, and we're just not – it's almost like we're not taking the time to really appreciate those anymore. That's what I think. Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up because it's something – you know, going to comedy shows I've seen Mm -hmm. firsthand, people get offended so easily. Oh, yeah. And – I realize it's not about me. Exactly. You yeah. know, and I think a lot of people have trouble deciphering because we are in social media so much and everything is like me, me, me. Mm-hmm. And they're so easily offended when, like, it's not about you. Right. Exactly. Exactly. People take it on. It's like they think one person is speaking directly to them or to their experience. And that's not really the case. I was in a show recently. I was on stage. Another performer was on stage. And. Um, there was a joke made, and it was a, it was about abortion. It wasn't specifically about abortion or, or Roe, Roe v. Wade. It was an offhand comment that was a part of a, a larger context. Um, and as I'm sitting there, this person right in front of me, it was an older um, lady, she popped up and immediately went to the general manager of the club and was like, I think that was just too much. It was out of hand. and And it was surprising to me because... And this was an open mic night. I've seen three or four comics before this person really just make horrible jokes about social things going on in the world. But this was the one that was kind of limited context, whatnot, where she got really offended. She sat back down after voicing her complaints um, and then laughed at an incredibly egregious racial joke. So... (laughs) You know, she and it was it was really interesting to see how offended she was on one thing, but then something else that another person, you know, probably could be offended, even for me to even question it in the moment, that didn't bother her at all. So it, it that should show her right there for her own sake. It's not it's not personal. This is where everyone needs to be able to laugh at themselves and at our entire situation here. It's okay to do that. Yeah, I think everyone's taking things too... Not everyone, but people are taking things too seriously. Agree. You know? Agree. And as a performer, a burlesque performer, mm-hmm. uh, I've had tables twice now up and walk out. Wow. As uh, soon as I was finished. One woman, girl, they were a young couple. Mm-hmm. They look alternative, they look hip. Like, they were right, right. going to enjoy some alternative entertainment. And she sent her boyfriend to the bathroom when I wow. came out. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And then as soon as I was done, check please. See, that and that's still amazing to me that even in today's age, sexuality is so closeted for a lot of people. A lot of folks really they don't want they they do not want any of their individual sexuality out in the open space at all. They don't they don't want to share that. And that's that's fine. I can completely understand that. It's very those types of things can be very personal, um, but I, I'm I'm still kind of shocked that we have so many people now who still are very much afraid of what they believe it means to express your sexuality, um, and to just be a and not even sexuality to be artistic with what you have to offer, whether it be 
um, your own personal shape or form, or your own words. I, I'm I'm amazed how many people shy away from that and shy away from those types of performances. I'm I'm very surprised um, that expression is so. It can still be looked down upon so much. Yeah, I was surprised more so by the age range because they uh-huh. were, I'm going to say, in their 20s. That you know is I mean? shocking. That was what shocked me the most. Yeah. And I had the same night, next show, like an, I don't know, 70, 80-year-old woman mm-hmm. who she was like, whoa! Yep, yep. She was there for it. With yep. her husband, they were the cutest. And I was like, couple goals yep. right there. You know, she's just having a good time. I think we're proving the point now that age and having a more conservative mentality um, are not necessarily mutually exclusive. Um, Agreed. I think, I remember my former in-laws, my former father-in-law, he used to make the point of saying, when you're young, you know, you're liberal, you're a Democrat, and as you get older, you'll see, you'll be a Republican, you'll be more conservative. And... I thought about that quite a bit, and I can understand where he was coming from, but that also wasn't my experience. You know, my grandparents, as they got older, um, before they passed, they were still very liberal in the way they thought and the way they looked at life. Even my own mother, um, she I think she's only gotten more liberal as she's gotten older, more accepting of things. Um, whereas I do, I have younger, I have yet nephews who, um, are more conservative than I would have anticipated. Um, I have, you know, friends and acquaintances who are younger than me who are much more conservative, not necessarily politically, but socially speaking, just in life in general. Um, I'm legitimately surprised at how conservative they can really be in some cases. Um, it's not so much that, you know, it tears us apart or it, it it's a negative thing, but it is surprising to, to kind of see that because I never thought it'd be that way. I thought... Um, you know, younger people, especially nowadays, I mean, I'm 42, I assume 23, 24, 25-year-olds would have no issue with, you know, or very little issue with anything nowadays, and that is certainly not the case. That is a very big surprise to me, but also to a lot of people, I think. Yeah, mm-hmm. same. Um, well, coming back to comedy as a mirror, um, can we sort of transition that into entertainment post-COVID? Because that's kind of where we are. I mean, that is that is where we are. There's a there's a great special um, that was filmed during uh, lockdown. Uh, I think it's, it's on HBO, HBO Max. Uh, it's like the last open mic before the end of the world. And it's really interesting because it's a drive-in, you know, it's, uh, you dr- this, these comics drive into this open garage and there's a lady with a microphone sitting on, on scaffolding and she's yelling at you to tell your joke and you have just a certain small amount of time to tell this joke and that's it there's no audience there's a microphone that's inserted into your camera by someone who's in a hazmat suit and masked up it's very safe and it's very interesting but it was to show what was going on in that moment in california during the lockdown where you're not supposed to be doing anything i i found that to be interesting because a lot of us were trying to figure out what to do and how to be for me, I hosted trivia online during COVID um, for people around the world. I, I held games for people in Morocco and Alaska and Texas and Florida. Um, and because people wanted, they still craved that type of, that live entertainment, even though they couldn't be in the same room, they still wanted that. And when we came out of COVID, it was interesting to see just how many folks have been clamoring for it. There are so many comedy shows in breweries and bars now, not just in comedy rooms. 
Um, people are, are having folks over to their backyard and hiring comics, magicians, people you know, also like me who do trivia, that kind of thing. Um, people were starved for that kind of thing. And when you, when you put that mirror up to society, it's like, okay, well, you needed this, clearly. Then we really shouldn't be taking ourselves too seriously. We have to look back on that experience and realize, yeah, it happened. We went through it. We lost a, a large portion of our lives for a long time. Um, but let's laugh about it. There were a lot of funny little things that happened in there. I mean, how many loaves of bread did you bake? Um, you know, how many new chicken recipes did you come up with because of TikTok? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, these are funny experiences that a lot of us shared, and it's time to look back on that and let's be honest and let's be funny about it. Yeah, there was definitely a, a message for COVID. You know, like if you understood the message yep. and you got it. Exactly. Congratulations. Yep. But for me, it was just like a blip. You know, yeah. I appreciated the, the time to just be still. Mm -hmm. And that was the lesson it taught me was how much we just go, 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 right. go, go. And right. we never stop to rest Agreed. and enjoy life. Mm -hmm. And my whole thing is time is something you can never get back. Yep. Right? It's the most valuable mm. thing that we have. Seriously. You can't buy it yeah. and you can't get it back. Mm -hmm. And so living in the moment is, it's my goal every day, you know, I'm, I, you. I'm living the present. But one of my highlights post COVID was a friend for her birthday wanted to have a, a grandma party. Mm. So we all dressed up as grandmas and we oh went out gosh. downtown Wilmington. Oh my gosh. And I cannot tell you how much people needed that. Yeah, yeah. It was, you could just see the joy on people's faces they missed it. They were craving yeah. it. And I I really want to bring that character back because Sandy, she's the bingo, <laughs> she's the bingo champion. <laughs> she's got a whole bio. This is beautiful. And she is ready to party. You're such a beach person inherently, so of course your name is going to be Sandy on that. That's hilarious. You know? Yeah. And I, I had a necklace in case I forgot that oh said gosh. Sandy. Oh you know? Um, we had the best time that night, and I realized... You can do anything yeah. and get away with it dressed as grandma. I would completely agree with you. Anything. Yeah. Uh, it was great. And everybody loved us from like 20-year-old guys hitting on these girls that were with us <laughs> where I'm like, she looks 80. <laughs> and they didn't care. They were like there for it. And yeah. then the young girls who were just like, oh, my God, I love this. That's you know, awesome. to people that thought we were celebrities and wanted photos taken mm -hmm. with us. And there was a... a I guess you would call it a runner or a busboy at a poorhouse. No, wait. What's the one with the wine that you can just pour your wine? Oh, it's my the poor, poor tap room? room? Poor tap room. Poor tap room, yeah. I don't want to confuse them. It happens all the time, I know. I know. I'm like, let me make sure we got the right place. Yeah. He looked like Justin Timberlake. Oh, wow. And so we messed with this guy all night. And one of the girls with us, she her character had a Boston accent. She looked like a Barbara Bush. That was her grandma. That's what you want, Barbara Bush with a Boston accent. And I couldn't figure out. Like, wow. I met her. She stayed in character all night, just mm -hmm. like me and Amy. We mm -hmm. all stayed in our characters. I couldn't figure out for the longest time if her accent was real because she was that good. That's good. That was She was good. That's impressive. She was like, your brooch. It's going to be mine. By the end of the night, it's going to be mine. Because wow. I had a cat brooch. Because yeah, yeah. I'm a cat lady, too. I'm with you. And so then we saw Justin, and she was like, Justin. <laughs> I love you, Justin. I'm just going to cry you a river. <laughs> and then he was just looking at us like, you are a 
freaking weird. <laughs> and every time he would come by, we'd be like, she would just mess with them, and we got photos with him. That's awesome. And he was just like, you guys made my night. Like, so we everywhere we went, we made people happy and smile. And I that's my point, and that's why I think it's my highlight is that people need that. They need to smile and laugh more. They were very much happy about that. Um, and I cool that dropped out. This happened yesterday too. I just happened to see it in my periphery. Uh, I'm cool. Well, you know, keep going. I'm going to um, just tell Jr. Um, yeah. The video dropped out, but we have the audio, so we'll just keep it rolling. Awesome. Um, no, I. You are exactly right. People. People really wanted to feel better about life and about things going on in life, and. I think after, um, and I, we say after, but, you know, obviously we're still experiencing some things, but after the bulk of uh, 2020, we get to this point now, I feel like people, they were craving it. They want to be able to smile. They want to be able to have that connection with others again. And Obviously, we were very much missing that by not being able to be together, being outside, being inside in bars or restaurants, wherever the case may be. Um, and when I do jokes, I love, I like people to laugh, but I like people to nod their heads in agreement. Like, it's relatable to them. That's very special to me because if I'm being relatable in a moment and absolutely hilarious, um, they are able to share in that and then they get to go tell someone else well this guy was telling this joke uh, you know about uh, hot dogs and and I just the other day I was telling my husband like you know where do hot dogs even come from where are they even you know that kind of thing that's it just starts that kind of that kind of conversation that kind of feeling and that's contagious that kind of joy is contagious I love that yeah so what's what's your favorite moment in entertainment post-covid hmm my favorite moment in entertainment post COVID. Keep it balanced. We're gonna keep that. Balanced. My personal favorite, like for me, or something that I've seen or experienced. What's the first thing that comes to mind when I say, you know, your favorite moment post COVID? Actually, my favorite moment post COVID, I was asked to open for Signal Fire in front at, at Greenfield Lake Amphitheater. I'm laughing because um, I was there for that. That was that was ridiculous. Um, obviously, I've been doing comedy for a short time. Now, I, I come from a background of public speaking, so I've been in front of large crowds before. I've, I've spoken in front of, you know, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 people before. However, I've never performed comedy in front of this many people by myself on the stage. Signifier is a headlining band, which means the people who were sitting in their seats all day, all night, enjoying, you know, musical performers are now all standing at a rail in front of the stage, you know, liquored up, pumped up, ready for, you know, this great music show that's going to have lights and smoke. And here I come sauntering out to the stage. It's just me and this microphone. And I've got to try to find the way to make these people laugh, entertain them, you know, not have them get too rabid. Um, it was um, it was amazing, and you know the guys knowing the the guys from Signal Fire is one thing, and they're a great great bunch of musicians, and they're great human beings. But then to be on that stage for them and in support of them was a huge compliment, and then it just was mind blowing. I had one lady 
who I'm looking out in the crowd and I'm doing my thing, and she's like, empty bottles! And she's, she has a cup, and it's clear she's been drinking, but she, and she's like, I know him, that's empty bottles! And I'm sitting there thinking at first, I'm like, oh, that's awesome, I got a groupie, maybe this is someone I'll holla at a little bit later, and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's my friend's wife, please tell her to sit down right now. Like, sit your wife down, we will talk tomorrow at lunch when she is not so hungover after this experience. Um, that was really cool, because it, you know, I'm like, I'm still at home. I'm still, you know, around my people. It's still Wilmington. So that was that was everything I needed to have that kind of energy and and to make people laugh in that setting. That was my favorite moment. Well, that was my first introduction to you. This is true. Yeah. This is true. That's how you knew me. That is. And, <laughs> you know, we should probably have a laugh because I thought your name, your stage name was Empty, like E-M-P-T-Y. That's what most people think, yeah. Bottles. And I think I, like, wrote it in a text and, and you graciously kindly corrected me. I made sure you understood exact the correct spelling of my first part of my name. That's right. Yeah. It's MT. And that's as the exactly uh, right. the video called you Mount Bottles. So I get Mount <laughs> Bottles, I get Mountain Bottles. Uh, that does help because of my size, so I like making fun of that. No, the MT comes from I used to rap. Yes, I was gonna ask you. Yeah, no, the MT comes from an old rap name. Uh, my rap name is Major Travesty. And um, yeah, you, know, you can find it on most major platforms, including iTunes, also uh, Bandcamp. I, uh, is it a major travesty? <laughs> I, it, is, it is a major travesty how many albums I didn't sell. Um, I did an EP and an album and a few singles. And, uh, hey, you did it. I, I mean, I did. I, I made these pieces of art. I made the, these works and completed them. Um, so I'm very proud of what I did. I wasn't, I figured out early on in the music business, it really wasn't for me. It wasn't... Um, it wasn't something I wanted to do on a regular basis. That grind is very different than any other type of grind. The things you have to do in the music business to get heard and to be seen and to make the impact where other uh, thousands, millions of other people can hear your music, that wasn't something I really was interested in after a while. Um, and so I, I don't know. I kept thinking about you know how I wanted to perform when I got into comedy, what I wanted to perform under my regular name or whatever the case may be, but empty bottles kept coming back um you know bottles i i used to be a, a much bigger partier i used to be known uh for my partying and so i felt like it was an appropriate uh name so it stuck with me and it seems to work well it's catchy for people so it is it's cute uh there's i think there was a band that might have played that same night um, at Greenfield Lake mm-hmm. that was called Free, free Beer. Drinks. Free Beer. Free Drinks. Oh, was it Free Drinks? Free Drinks. Oh, Free Drinks. So, funny you say that. Um, I love that band. I actually, and this is interesting, this kind of goes into our entertainment post-COVID conversation also. Um, I met those guys at Barzar um, here in Wilmington. Barzar? Former Juggling Gypsy. It's okay. now called the Barzar. Um, it's a hookah lounge and they have a lot of interesting acts on the on a regular basis there um, but on Monday nights they have an open mic called the public access open mic show um, where there's comedy there's music there's magic sometimes there's uh, fire spinning fire dance there's all anything any kind of performance I've seen someone throat singing there before and I mean like legitimate like the raw blah incredible like yeah so, but this band, Free Drinks, they uh, they won Battle of the Bands at UNCW. They did open mic there several times at Barzar. So that's how I got to know them. And I love live music, always have. Um, but they, when they get on stage, 
you see and you experience this feeling of like they let they really do leave it all out there. These are not tentative young people who are like nervous to be playing their guitar in front of people. That is not the case. These are people who they are they get into a groove into a vibe where their physicality, their musicianship, it all comes together and they put on a show. And I found that to just be intriguing because I'm looking at 20, 21 year olds who are just leaving it all out there. So when they they were at Greenfield Lake, I heard they were going to be on the show. Also, I'm like, I have a, I have to shout them out because I love them, and they're humble guys, and they all they want to do is is make great music and great performances. Um, but also at the same time, I you know I tell them all the time, I'm like, you know, you could not get away with a name called Free Drinks where I'm from. That's absolutely impossible. Um, you if you were going to say free drinks, people are coming to get some liquor, and if free liquor is not there, you're going to get run out of town very quickly. So I essentially told them not to come to try in North Carolina anytime soon. But other than that, perform anywhere else because folks will love the name free drinks, and clearly it they do because they do bring a crowd where they go. So, well, I think the name is important when you know when you're choosing a name. So Agreed. I give them props for the name. Oh yeah, but I do agree. There needs to be some free drinks because <laughs> yeah. that's false advertising. I mean, put some PBR on tap or something. I mean, you know, I, at yeah. least a drink ticket, just I one ticket. Will not disagree with you on that. So maybe when we throw our big party, our big event, yeah, we'll invite free drinks to play. I completely agree with you. And they're going to be in charge of the drinks. Yes, I and yes, if they listen to this, yes, you guys are in charge of the beverages. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's on the contract right now. Know that. Okay. Yeah. Well, just know we're going to make that happen. Done and done. Cool. Um, What about some comedy workplace politics? So I don't know who said it first or who said it most recently, but, you know, it was once said that comedy was the last true democracy. And people also say it's it's one of the only meritocracies. Um, You know, you're supposed to earn what you get um, no matter who you are or where you come from. And over the years, of course, we've seen, you know, these incredible comics come and go and, and people who've sold out arenas and stadiums with their comedy who've been on television shows and movies and things of that nature and they they definitely you know worked very hard for that and then you've also seen folks who have gotten into trouble in their own personal lives or you know maybe they went too far on certain things or they may just be terrible human beings and you know they they're not out in the public eye anymore for a good reason um when you're working inside of comedy clubs or inside of the industry there is also a lot that goes on specifically with other comics because it's incredibly competitive. Everyone would love to, you know, be on for 30 minutes and make hundreds or thousands of dollars in a night and make all these people laugh and be in the best spots, the best clubs. And, um, you know, if you're really working on your craft, that's what you want. You want that to be the case for you. You don't necessarily want someone else to have that life. Um, we all have friends, you know, who are in comedy, but and we want our friends to do well, but I don't know that all of us or any of us want our friends to do better than us in comedy because that's our spot. You know, that's the way it's kind of looked at a lot of times. Um, and for myself, I'm new. Um, I have not been in the game for 5, 10, 15 years, whatever the case may be, and I can definitely speak from experience where there are people who... They are not happy about, you know, me getting uh, certain gigs or any gigs at all. Um, Folks, even though we think it's a meritocracy or a democracy, they're not happy that I haven't had that much time in the game, yet 
they feel like I may have jumped a spot or two. And I've seen that with others as well. Um, I've seen 18 and 19 year old comics who are absolutely hilarious, absolutely hilarious and completely get looked over for other gigs um, where they could definitely do good work and not, not just do good work for themselves, but bring notoriety to whatever venue they may perform at or notoriety to whoever the person is who booked them. Um, so it, it's, it's very clear that, you know, there's kind of that same, um, I guess we'll say old school mentality where it's like, well, you haven't put your dues in, so, you know, you haven't put your time in. For me, I mean, I've lived a life where I put my dues in. Um, I can remember distinctly, it wasn't that long ago where I was sleeping on a friend's couch, had no money, had no job. I would go, ironically, to my old crazy mechanic's car shop and would ask him to help him work on it. I didn't know nothing about auto mechanics. I didn't know cars, but I would slide underneath a car in 20-degree weather and help him hand him tools or try to help him change oil to get, like, 10 or 15 bucks for the day. I did that. Um, for a time, um, I would. He was so poor. I would drop him off at a motel so he had somewhere warm to sleep for the night. That was the goal: was to make enough money during the day to get a pack of Newports, a back a, a bottle of Blue Top vodka for him, um, and then fifteen bucks for me, so I'd have enough gas money to get back to my friend's couch. Like we did that. Um, those are my dues. You know, I put that time in. Um, I've gone through quite a bit, and I don't mind that. I've gotten to where I am in a short period of time because I, I'm funny and I enjoy being funny and I enjoy people. Um, those are those are my bones. I, I put those in and I'm, I'm satisfied with that. So I had uh, Jesse Stockton on the podcast mm-hmm. yesterday and his best advice um, was talent is nothing without practice. Exactly. So it just kind of popped in my head that you know, you have put in all this time mm-hmm. and this practice. Yeah. And I was at Port City Top Comic mm-hmm. the the night all the finalists performed. Right. You were one of them. Yes. And I think there were 13 that night. Were there 13? It's supposed to be 12. 12. But I think it may have come out at 13, yeah, because I don't know what happened. But, yeah, I think you're right. We'll, we'll go with 12. Yeah. But out of 12 comics, you were one of the 12. Yes. And... That was a pretty big deal because yeah. you haven't been performing that long, right. a year, not even. Not even. And to make it to the finals of something like that, how how do you how did you feel? I wanted to win. Um, I'm not even gonna lie. I am not gonna be humble on here about that. I really wanted to win. I'm not gonna lie to you. Um, I, Doesn't everyone? I want to think so. Yeah. But All I don't 12 know. of you wanted to win. <laughs> Only know, one could walk away. I really wanted to win. And I would say that was a tough night because oh, man. every single one of those comics in their own right was talented. You know, And everybody was good that night. Everybody was good, um, which is what you want. You want, because even in a competition like that, maybe I want to win, I don't want you to win. But if we're all good, that means the room is going to be good, too. The room is enjoying the comedy. And that energy is not something you can take for granted. Um, yeah, sure, it's great to try to create that energy for yourself. And maybe that, you know, might propel you in one case. But you, that energy, it feeds you. And you, you're sustained on stage, you know, just by this abundance of laughter and happiness and anticipation. Um, it's the best when people anticipate that they're going to laugh their face off. Um, Because they want it. That's what they want. Yeah. Um, I was actually shocked at at how funny 
every single comic yeah. was. Like my my jaw hurt. In their own way. In their own way. Like, each of them had their own style, Mm -hmm. their own genre, per se, and, like, legit funny. Yeah, exactly. And it was hard for me to just pick three. I'm like, really? I got to narrow that down to three? And because I think also depends on where you were in the lineup, because Mm -hmm. that also, I think, plays a factor. Because by the end, I was like, man, who... I don't even remember that person. And you, they did bring you all out and like remind of the name, you remind the face with the name. Right, right. But I think luck of the draw had a lot to do with it. And I yeah. don't know if you saw that. I think well, the top comic he was in the beginning, but the other two, the second and third, right, right, they were towards they the were end. towards mm-hmm. the end yep. because that's what people are going to remember. Exactly, exactly. So how did that work? Did you just draw numbers out of a hat? Did they just assign you a number? No, no, they they just assigned numbers. Um, which I didn't mind at all. There was no, you know, there wasn't. There was anything. no rhyme or reason. Yeah, sure. exactly. No, and that wasn't a problem for me at all. I and mean, I can't yeah. speak for anybody else if they had any issues with it. But for me, I didn't mind that because I, I expected to be the funniest um, when I came out. Um, you know, the prelims, I loved my set in the prelims. I had a great time with it and a great time with the crowd. And one thing I did that other people, I, I, I don't know everyone else's process, but I do know one person in particular um, I wrote all new jokes for that weekend. I was very adamant about that. Now, that's a very dangerous thing to do, especially when you haven't worked on them in front of a crowd before. Um, I was fortunate because I had a show. So the prelims were on Friday and the finals were on Sunday. I had a show on Saturday night, so I was able to premiere the new jokes that I was going to do on Sunday at this particular gig which was somewhat helpful but it still wasn't it's not like it had been tested thoroughly Mm -hmm. um and so for me what that means is when i have a new joke i tend to i want to make sure i hit all the points in that joke and i i in my head i've already already visualized where the laugh points are where the pauses that kind of thing that doesn't necessarily mean that's the way it's going to play out but that's the way i visualized it and so I want to hit every joke. I want to hit everything. So I, I'm, I slow down a little bit. And when that happens, that's a different version of me on stage versus when I'm doing my thing. And I bring that up because after I performed, a lot of great laughs. People really enjoyed it. Um, a comedy mentor, who I don't use his name because um, I think he likes the anonymity. He, he, A lot of people know him around town, but he's worked in the entertainment industry for a number of years at a very high level. And he stays very low-key, and most people would not know he's done the things he's done in life. He, I said, how was my set? What, did you, what do you think? Because he's going to be honest. Friends or not, he's going to be honest. And he said, you were very subdued. It was, good, it was a good set, but you were very subdued. And instantly I knew what he meant, and I'm like, all right, I know what you mean. I got it. This was on Saturday or Sunday? That was on Sunday, uh-huh. after that Sunday set, because he had been there for the Friday set also. And I can distinctly remember seeing him. He was right up front and just dying laughing on Friday. And when I can make him laugh like that, I know I've done well. And that's how I made it to the finals. But when he told me that on Sunday, I'm like, okay, I get it. I know what I did. Versus another person who was in this competition who did very, very well um, said to me, or actually I heard him talking about his process. He didn't write new jokes. He used the same jokes from Friday on Sunday, but he went home on Friday after the prelims and rewrote them and tweaked them or and, and said, okay, I think I can make this a little bit funnier. Mm-hmm. And I used the same exact premises, but just added a little spice here and there, mm-hmm. took a little something away, mm-hmm. and still did very well in the competition. So that was uh, a learning experience mm-hmm. from that regard. 
um, for me. Um, but yeah, no, I wanted to win that thing. And I went home after that on Sunday. I was distraught. And didn't know what to do with yeah, myself. Yeah, you pieced out after the show. Oh, man, I zoomed out of there. I could not get out of there fast enough. I went home. I forgot to make food before I left. So all I had were some Hot Pockets. And I'm sitting there depressed in front of my microwave looking at the instructions on how to make Hot Pockets. I have eaten Hot Pockets since I don't know how old, like I was 9 or 10 years old. But I am. I was so distraught I had to read the instructions on how to microwave these Hot Pockets. That's how bad off I was. You put them in the, in the thing and you I'm push like, the buttons. Wait, do I turn the sleeve this way? Should oh. I close it? No, no, that's yeah. not okay. Yeah, that was me that Sunday night. So Well, uh, let's. We're going to jump from there to the material process because you just kind of touched on it, and that was actually a question that prompted for me. Walk us through, like, your process as a comic. Um, how do you set up your jokes? And, and obviously some of this is, in, you know, maybe confidential. Secret sauce. Yeah. Secret sauce, yeah. yeah. So what you can share with us. Um, I'm just curious as, you know, an artist, as a comic, you know, kind of how you create your recipe. No, I, I'm totally open about that because... I, once again, I can't speak for anyone else or, or everyone else. For me, um, life in general just presents itself in a way that um, I feel like everyone else should know my perspective on it, um, which is, is probably an incredibly narcissistic way to look at it, but it doesn't make it any less true. Um, I, I find things in life funny and interesting, and I want to talk about them all the time. Um, so there are times when I'm riding around the car, um, and something comes to me because I see a person crossing the street or someone's fixing an ATM. And I think to myself, you know, that's interesting. You don't see a lot of people who work on ATMs that don't have glasses. Why is that? Like, you know, just foolish, stupid little things that might be insignificant in the time or in the moment, but I, it festers in my mind. I start, you know, really thinking about it. Um, one thing I never gave a lot of credence to when I was younger that I realize now um, is very important to me is meditation. And when you and, and, and meditation doesn't necessarily have to just be, you know, in, in Shavasana or in warrior pose or whatever the case may be, or it doesn't have to be with candles lit and whatnot. Um, I have found that if I'm in a quiet room and I just close my eyes, things become so much more clear to me and things come to me. And I, I assumed they were daydreams before. I never realized, um, number one, there are a lot of solutions that come to mind in those moments, but also um, there are a lot of jokes that come. There are things that just start knocking around in my brain in these moments and I realize, oh my goodness, that's a great premise for a joke. Let me, and I come out of it and I start writing it immediately. Um, and I'm very fortunate in that way. Um, it's similar to how I wrote my music. I've written poetry since I was very young. Um, I loved, I used to love writing poetry for girls when I was in like fourth and fifth grade um, and beyond. Um, you know, do you like me? Do you not like me? That wasn't me. I'm trying to really express my feelings about someone. And I used to do that all the time. As a matter of fact, I have a friend um, and she loves reminding me of this all the time. Um, we were in the fifth or sixth grade. I don't know. We were very young. And I wrote her this poem about her looks and how I found her so beautiful and whatnot. 
And mind you, this person is married. She's got five kids. We've been friends since we were probably in the third grade. But every single time I see her, she brings up that poem and how impressed and she was by that poem and just, you know, this kind of a watermark thing for her and she teases her husband with it all the time. Um, it's so funny because it's, it's, it's nice to be reminded that, okay, I have had this going on for a while, the way my mind happens to work, and I'm glad I've been able to transfer that to paper and eventually out into um, the universe verbally, but when I, when I write, it can go many different ways. I, I just don't have one specific process. I know some folks will just go sit by the river with a notebook and just let the world come to them. Maybe that happens for me on a day, but you know, I got a five-year-old, so I got that kind of time no more. Um, <laughs> so. Well, two things that come to mind. I'm going to write myself a note. Um, uh, one is the flow state. So you just mm-hmm. mentioned like getting, you know, when you can meditate, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's when you can get into your flow state. Yeah. And meditation is simply quieting the noise. Exactly. It's turning the volume down on everything else so that you can connect and and listen to your higher self. Mm -hmm. And that's where you're going to get your answers. Um, So that's what came up for me there. And then I don't know if you heard Kevin Hart. I like listened to him on a few podcasts. Mm -hmm. I think he's hilarious. I agree. And I listened to um, how he started out, like Mm kind of his story, Mm -hmm. which is very fascinating Mm -hmm. if you haven't heard it. And he used to sit in the back of comedy clubs mm-hmm. and take notes right. and listen to other comics. And, and that's how he would. What worked, what didn't work. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. So I don't know. Have you have you done any of that? I have a very hard time now watching stand-up comedy. Um, this is another reason why I tend to peace out after I get off stage. And I try not to be in the room for too long before I go on stage, if I can help it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason is, is, number one, I have an incredible memory. Um and, and when I hear something, see something, it just goes right in there. So, number one, I try never, I don't want to listen too intently because I'm always afraid that it will transfer into my own work, and I do not want that. I don't even want to get to a level of plagiarism is one thing. I don't even want that kind of influence necessarily. Now, that's just me. There are some people who feed off of that, and they love that kind of energy, but that's just not me, um, which is very different because I've watched stand-up comedy for so long and, and watched it intently. But that was mainly as a fan, not not as a performer. Um, you know, for me, I I can talk to other comics about premises and about setups and and whatever the case may be. Um, but I have found that for me, it's best to be alone and and in my own space with it, so that when I do bring it out, even if it bombs, if it's bad, I need to feel that. I have to have that experience where. I feel that that negative energy from the crowd or whoever the recipient is of the jokes, I need to know that it didn't work in that instance, and then I can go back and... Because I like to visualize. I like to see everything in my own way. And that's for me, that's very important. And I, in this comedic world, that I do find it to be a little bit selfish, but, I mean, it, it is who I am. Um, and, you know, I mentioned that I have a 5-year-old, she people always say well she must provide you with an immense amount of material and she does show up in my jokes quite often um but at the same time this is another thing about that process when i'm with her um it is my duty to be present with her 
And so I'm not necessarily recording every interaction in my brain that we have. You know, there's some comics who go off about life with their children. They can do an hour just on life with their children and cleaning up the room or doing the dishes and that type of thing. And I could probably do that, but when I'm with her, my time is spent with her and with us. And so it's a lot harder for me to kind of pull from that because some of those things for me, even if it's just something innocuous, can be sacred to me um, because she's just so special. Um, but there are certainly some things that I just have to tell the world about when it comes to her that are absolutely hilarious. Um, and so that's where a lot of my focus and a lot of my time is is spent when it comes to that process is just being by myself and um, you know figuring out life my own way and then broadcasting that to everybody else. I like it. If I feel like it's important enough. Yeah. Well, what about your favorite funny people? Mm. I mean, we did mention Kevin Hart. Top five. I do like Kevin Hart. I'm a fan of Kevin Hart. I'm also a fan of Dave Chappelle as well. A big fan of Dave Chappelle. I've watched him since he first started. Um, Is it Donnell Williams? Is that his name? Wait. With uh, Chappelle? Yeah. Oh, Donnell Rawlings? Donnell Rawlings. Oh, my gosh. I keep doing that. No, 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 no. Donnell Rawlings. Oh, my God. I just had this conversation with someone the other day about Donnell Rawlings and how absolutely drop-dead funny he is. Um, I saw him live on stage. He's hilarious. With Chappelle. Yeah. I think he outperformed Chappelle. Oh, that's... You're not the first person who said that to me. But he's got a little Chappelle in him. He's kind of like the old Chappelle was. Yeah. The new Chappelle is like... I don't know. He's up on a soapbox right now. Introspective and very, it, there's a lot more, I don't know. There's a lot to that. No, I, I mean, I appreciate it. I know what you're because, saying, though. You know, yeah. he's got something that he's passionate about that he wants to share. And right, he's right. using that, I think, his platform to make a point. Exactly. And I appreciate that. Right. But sometimes he loses me in the comedy because there's not comedy. Mm-hmm. It's more of a soapbox. Right. Um, but I can appreciate using his platform and his um, celebrity I get status yeah. Yeah. to make a point about LBGTQ. Right, right. No, my well, so my top five: uh, Red Fox and Eddie Murphy are, are on the they're in, they're in the pantheon for me. Okay. Um, I, I don't know who Red Fox is, but not even Sanford and Son. Ah, okay. Yep, he is Fred Sanford. He's aged ourselves. (laughs) Well, and Sanford's and it's timeless. It's timeless, Um, or at least it should be. But Red Fox, um, Sanford and Son, people know him as Fred Sanford. That is not who Red Fox is. If you watch Red Fox's comedy, this is a man who is cool, glasses, dress well, cigar, drink in his hand, um, and just said some of the most just outlandish, absurd things that were right on the money every single time. A lot of people back in the day would talk about Lenny Bruce and how Lenny Bruce, you know, would get arrested all the time for indecency because of his language, and, and there were a lot more blue laws back then. Um, and Lenny was, they, they credit Lenny for kind of being the, um, the martyr in that sense who brought that type of comedy to the light of day. Red Fox took all of that and then went 100 miles over the border with it. Um, and just his comedy in the in the 70s, 60s, 70s, these albums were amazing. Um, and I grew up in a house where we had a lot of vinyl, so I got to listen to him on vinyl, and then I see him on Sanford and Son, and then he's in a classic movie, Harlem Nights, with Eddie Murphy and Richard Pryor, who you know are heroes of mine as well. Whoopi Goldberg um, is, is really big for me. 
I grew up on Whoopi, um, watching her movies and Live Aid and everything she's done. Um, and of course, our family movie is The Color Purple. You know, we, we can basically recite the entire movie from start to finish in my immediate family. Um, but then two other comics that are really special to me, Stephen Wright, who is a Boston comic, um, who is monotone and has these incredible one-liners that just, they make you think, and then as soon as you contemplate these things, you're laughing hysterically, but now he's on to the next one, and then the next one, so you're just in this constant state of laughter and introspection all the time. Um, he's a Boston comic, which which is a big deal. Um, it's where Dennis Leary is from and um, Colin Quinn. A lot of those guys came out of Boston. Um, and then Don Rickles, who... Um, <laughs> Don Rickles is Don... Are you familiar with Don Rickles? I think. Give me a reference, because he's thin. Well, so, no, Don is... Don, he's dead now. He's not. He was not thin. He was bald-headed, um, a little on the chubby side, white, um, he is in the movie Casino. He is oh, uh, the right-hand man of Robert Nero's character. He doesn't have a lot of lines in the movie Casino, but he has a bald head. He has a bald head. Um, he was also in, uh, he was a favorite of Johnny Carson's. He was on Johnny Carson all the time. Does he um, kind of look like like bald here? Completely bald. Completely bald. Yeah. And he was As the right-hand when he man? Older, in the older days, he was bald on top and had hair on the Okay, uh, so in Casino, is he the guy that's like, he's in charge of, uh, uh, I'm trying to think, the mob boss's girlfriend. Like, he's the mob boss's friend. He is uh, Robert De Niro's friend. Yeah, and he's and trying he, to tell, I forget, I forget, I should know this in the movie, but my brain can't go there right now. He, he'll talk to her, to Sharon Stone's character. To Sharon Stone's character. He talks to her a couple of times and telling her what to do, and then, um, oh, I can tell you a very specific scene. When uh, they catch the guy cheating in the casino, if you remember when yes. they catch the guy, and he the guy realizes he um, he's been Pulling signaling, he goes up to the uh, the cashier and he's trying to cash out as quickly as possible. Don Rickles walks up to him and says, "Sir, wouldn't you like a more private room to count your money?" You know, let's say that's Don Rickles. Oh, I see him now. He's not the one I was thinking of, but now I know who you're that's talking Don about. Rickles. Now Don Rickles. Oh, so he plays more of like the, the chill. Exactly. I was thinking of. Um, Not Joe Pesci. Joe Pesci. Oh That's no. That's who I was thinking of. Where I was like that guy because when he's like, honey. You know, I'm gonna crack you over your skull. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm gonna go to prison. When I come back, I'm gonna do it again. <laughs> you know why? <laughs> yeah, that's. <laughs> I love Casino. I love Casino. Oh, my God. And I want to go watch it again. I kind of want to do that after this. I know. I'm not going to lie. It's like one of those nights. I don't Um, blame you. Or it's supposed to rain tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow's the better day. I'm into it. No, Don Rickles. So, first off, Don Rickles, um, amazing, amazing comic. The way he would work with the crowd and the things he would say. I don't know. We have this discussion with people all the time. I don't know that he could get away with what he has done in the past if he could do it today. He's passed on now, but and the reason I say that, for example, he would he can he would insult anyone, man, woman, anyone of any persuasion, of any orientation, of any color. He did not care. And it would all be funny. It would all be funny. And you think to yourself, I don't know how. He just said one of the most racist things I've ever heard, but you laugh. Um, there's a great movie slash documentary. It's directed by John Landis. Um, where it's called the Don Rickles Project. 
and I think it's on Amazon Prime right now. It is incredible because it shows his beginnings. To He was a, a, a great friend of Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin. He hosts a lot of Dean Martin roasts, if you're familiar with those. Those are great to watch on YouTube sometimes. Um, but in his own right, he, he toured until he was in his 90s, active until basically the day he died because he was such a draw. He'd come on stage and he'd yell at the band or yell at the announcer and then he'd see if he saw someone of any Asian descent in the crowd, he'd immediately walk out and say, three years I was in the jungle looking for your father. And he would do these horrible impressions, but you laugh because when you see it, it just was so funny. He made fun of Ronald Reagan to his face at his inauguration. I mean, who who does that kind of thing? And Ron Ronald Reagan laughs his tail off and everybody laughs they laugh their tails off, but... He was an amazing comic in that regard because he was relatable, but at the same time, he was just so vicious that you had no choice but to find him funny. And I like that. I like being able to do that on stage sometimes myself. I don't go to those types of extremes, but people see me, there's a connotation automatically, and there's stereotypes, you know, with a person of color who might be big, who might be loud, whatever the case may be. Maybe I'm intimidating. Um, I love that kind of stereotype on stage because I get to play with that. I can act like that person towards a person in the crowd, or I can be the complete opposite and find myself to be, I, I try to make myself small and intimidated by them or whatever the case, helpless, if you will. There are a lot of different ways you can transform that idea, and it makes people feel good and it makes them laugh. Um, so I, I try to take pieces from all of those comics and try to make them my own. Very cool. Well, let's move on to the timing of ambition, goals, failure, and success. Yeah, definitely. That was a, that was a lot. Yeah. Ambition. Yeah. Goals. Yeah. Failure and success. Yeah. And I like that you use failure. Mm-hmm. You know, because I think a lot of people, a lot of us, I will say, are afraid to fail. I yeah. You know, and that's literally, I think, they say seventy percent of success is getting over the fear of failure. Mm-hmm. And so if you can get over the fear of failure, you're over three quarters of the way there. Yeah. I mean, I keep going back to the point that I'm a parent. So if you don't if you don't feel like a failure at least 35 to 60 percent of the time as a parent, you're not parenting right. Um, <laughs> I, you ain't doing it right. You ain't doing it right at all. Um, I'll tell you, when you know you're doing it right is when they're mad at you. Exactly. Exactly. When you, they tell you that you're the worst mom yeah. or worst dad in the world. Yeah. That's when I'm like, yeah, girl, you're doing it right. When you're like, you're doing it right, that's when you realize, oh, my gosh, I was supposed to pick her up at soccer practice 30 minutes ago. Um, <laughs> that's, that's typically my experience. Um, no, I... I, that, I Yeah, oh, it's terrible. Um, I have been ambitious since I was probably two or three years old, if not before that. I wanted everything. I wanted to be rich. I wanted to be famous. I want all these things. I want to be on TV. Um, and, of course, those things morph and change as you get older. Um, all of those lofty goals and dreams kind of stuck with me. Um, but then failure comes into play. Um, and, you know, I went through, you know, several experiences where, you know, I kind of touched on before. But um, one of my biggest things in 2001, I left I left college and came home, didn't know what I was going to do. I'll never forget this. I was sitting on the couch in my house. It's a big deal. When you turn 18, you're at the house. College, go. 
work go? You know? I rolled out when I was 17. I, I, you understand. I, I put it in my parents' face because they were like, 18, you got to go. And yeah. I was like, I pieced out at 17. Good for you. Yeah. I think my mom would have appreciated that as well. <laughs> um, I get back home after college. I'm sitting on the couch. And my mom and I, it was just me and my mom, we ordered pizza, and I got a 12-pack of Bush Light bottled beer. Do you know they make Bush Light apple, by the way? <laughs> Saw it at the grocery just store yesterday. This bit. guy <laughs> bought two cases, and then he also bought a regular Bush Light. I mean, Miller Light. Yeah, it was a Miller Light with two Bush Light apple. And I was, in my mind, I was doing the, do I think those are for him? <laughs> or are those for a girl? But then I'm like, would he buy two cases for a woman? And one for himself, they have to be for him. Well, I'm hating right now, but the truth of the matter is <laughs> I probably would have torn that up on some beer pong in college, if I'm being honest. <laughs> like, that would have been my beer pong beer of choice. I'm not going to lie about that right now. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit here and act like I'm gagging, but the truth is, you know, there is a 22-year-old me who's like, I would bombs away on that beer right now if I had a chance. Um, like, maybe the apple helps it taste better because... I don't know there's much that's going to make Bush Light taste better. But, <laughs> you know, that Rocky Mountain feud. Anyway, um, uh, no, no, I, um, damn, that's funny. <laughs> I, I'm not getting past that anytime soon. You could definitely use that in one of your bits. I may have to, Bush Light now. Apple. Yeah, no, no. That's I, when we hit an all-time low. Listen, I, um. We're now flavoring our beer. Not just any beer. <laughs> Bush, Bush Light. <laughs> We're not talking about we're at a craft brewery and there's this apple sour or something. No, 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 no. Like that's, a Goza. Yeah, yeah. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about Bush. Most people who drink Bush Light probably don't know how to spell Goza or, yeah, no. Anyway, we'll get into that some other time. It's like Bush Light's already good. You don't need to change it <laughs> and add an apple flavor. You're a purist. I, I dig it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I like it's like that. Miller Light, Bush Light, nat- Natural Light. Mm-hmm. What's the other one? Something ice. Ice house. Ice. <laughs> you were going down. Oh my! I'm getting a hangover listening to you right now. Um, let's just bring them all out. Keystone. Keystone light. Oh my! Milwaukee's God. best. Milwaukee's the beast. Oh, that's what my dad drinks, and it's so gross. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, do you really get a buzz off this? Oh, you'll get a buzz. You have to drink a lot. You'll get a lot of things from that. Oh, um, don't forget about the light. Yeah. I mean, well, that's, that's just, like America's that's choice. That's water. That's just, that's beer-flavored water there. That is, I went to Bush Gardens mm-hmm. and went to the Bush Tasting School for Beer. <laughs> I, okay, I mean, no judgment if that's your beer, but like, you must not have taste buds. No, no. Well, we are post-COVID, so, you know. Um, I mean, this was pre, but. Uh, either say, way, it don't matter. It could, you could go either there's way. There's a lot more um, uh, choices out there when drinking beer. Yeah. That's not going to be my choice. There's a great documentary called Beer Wars, which gets into Ooh. why we these be, these brands are so large. And also, especially when they have little to no flavor compared to these craft beers who, you know, have. And it's interesting because this was made early to mid-2000s. So that was when, the, you know, that craft beer explosion was just starting um, and of course, now we're in the age of breweries on every corner and bottle shops everywhere. Well, so it's get really ready for the cannabis industry to blow it up. I am ready for that. Um, <laughs> I'm more than ready for that. Like on, you said on every corner, <laughs> yeah. and all the different flavors. Yes. Um, it's coming. Stoked. Um, <laughs> no, but it's um, 
It's fine. No, so so back then it 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 was a situation where, um, you know, I got to a point where I was trying to figure out what life really was going to look like for me when I got home, and I was eating this pizza, drinking this bushlight beer with my mom, and she is just so angry with me because she's like, "What are you going to do? What kind of job are you, are you going back to school? What are you going to do?" And she got me to a point. And my mother doesn't like confrontation, which I don't know that she would actually have this kind of conversation with me now, but. I remember blurting out, I make people happy. I don't know what that means, but I know how to make people smile, and I'll figure out a way to translate into translate that into a career. And she just looked at me like, what does that mean? And that just went back and forth. And then she passed out after two beers. So, because she was not a drinker, and it was hilarious in the first case that she was drinking Bushlight beer, but she could not handle her beer that day. Um, and I thought about that a lot, and I wanted to open this restaurant that was, in my mind, I was thinking of it as what I'd seen in Harlem Nights, where it was like dancing and comedy and music and food, and you could come to this place and just have a nice time where there's jazz playing, and it's really classy. And so I started working at, at Best Buy, and I was making money, and then in, during the off hours, I was working on this idea for this restaurant supper club called the Violet Rose. I was combining yeah. you know, my mother's name with my favorite aunt's name, and that's what I worked on. I actually uh, was in uh, Spartanburg, South Carolina. I was talking to um, the downtown organization there. I was getting uh, buildings. I was looking at buildings to put this place in, talking to investors and chefs and all of these things. Mind you, had no business experience whatsoever before this, which comes into play. Um, Feeling like I had this great idea and... I realized after a while two things. Number one, um, when it came to the actual infrastructure of starting something like this, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. I was kind of being led by the teeth, um, you know, by these individuals who were in these large organizations who already had businesses or business interests. They knew what they were doing. And some of them were trying to be helpful and guide me along. Some of them had their own interests in mind, and they weren't necessarily um, thinking about mine. And others were complete liars. And I did not, I was very gullible. I kind of still am, but I was very gullible back then. And I, when you tell me you're going to invest $2 million into my dream, I just believed you, let alone you don't have $2 million. And, you know, you also have been arrested for fraud before. So um, those were very eye opening things for me and learning experiences. Um, and that was when I realized I needed to go back to school, and then I thought politics was it for me. Um, and then I'm a true believer in politics, which you can't work in politics and be a true believer. I had an ambition and the goal of being um, president of the United States at one time. That morphed into being uh, a consultant and a kingmaker, if you would, for someone at that high, high of a level of, of government and politics. And I felt like that's where my life was going to lead me. And then, you know, I fell out of favor with that. And I started realizing, number one, you're going to fail at these things when you lose an election or um, when you realize that, you know, there are individuals or situations that might let you down um, and that dream or that goal that you had, you know, kind of falls in front of you. That doesn't mean that's the end of the world. There's still time there. Um, So pick yourself back up and you keep moving along. You keep going for something, and then I started equating it to baseball, just getting base hits. You don't always have to hit home runs. Um, you know, I got to a point where a base hit was having a working car, um, and then a base hit was 
um, having a you know stable housing, having my own place to live. Um, and once we got to those, we, we completed those steps, then it, I did go back to school for a while. When I got back to school, another opportunity presented itself. Um, and these were all small little stepping stones to getting to somewhere. I got to uh, Massachusetts. I started living in Massachusetts for a short time performing my music. I thought this was it. I'll be in Boston and this will lead me to New York and so on and so forth. And then 180 inches of snow fell in the month of January in Springfield, Massachusetts. And I'm a boy from the South who does not deal well with 180 inches of snow covering up speed limit signs and whatnot. And also, I just started, you know, this relationship with the love of my life at that time. And I'm, you know, a thousand miles away from her. All of these things translated into we're just going to start over again. So, you know, I went back and I, I had to readjust, you know, my goals again. Um, I realize now more than anything, I failed quite a bit of times at a lot of different ventures they all were learning experiences, every single one of them. I'm not here today if it weren't for those experiences. Mm-hmm. And now I I do want to be, I want to be great in comedy. I want to be a better father than that. And most importantly, I really want, I want me and my daughter, I want us to be able to do whatever we want, whenever we want. Not necessarily with, you know, being a millionaire or whatever the case may be, but I want she and I to have that feeling of freedom and really have no limits. I want her to know what it is to have absolutely no limits on what you're able to do, what's possible for you, but also at the same time to understand there are a lot of things that you're not going to get initially. There are a lot of times you're going to fall flat on your face. She doesn't like to sweat. Um, We're on the soccer field all the time, and she hates to sweat, and I have to tell her that means you're playing hard and you're working hard, baby. And when she hears that and she starts to think about it, she said, well, did I play hard today? I feel like I had a lot of fun today. I said, did you sweat a lot? She says, yes. I said, you did, baby. And now when she doesn't sweat or she feels like she hasn't sweated enough, she's like, I don't think I I played hard enough today. And if we can get that type of mindset now and she and I can keep working with that throughout the rest of our lives, I feel like we're going to be in a good spot. And I'll at least feel like I left something with her. So, you know, it. She's going to fall on her face. She doesn't know it quite as much right now. She will. And I'll be there to make sure she understands it's a stepping stone. Keep it rolling. Yeah, that's beautiful because a lot of parents don't allow their children to fail. You know, they want to catch them before they fall. Right, right. You know, rescue them, Mm -hmm. helicopter in. Yeah. And that doesn't teach them anything about life. No, You know, so I love that's beautiful that you're teaching her those lessons. Yeah. Letting her experience them on her own is it's it's hard to sit back and watch somebody else fail when you yeah. know the answer or you've done that before and you know, and you're like, no, they got to do it too. Yeah, well, I mean, she's she's a woman that'll be growing up in this world. I mean, it's it's hard enough already for that. Um, you know, I I'm a man who, I mean, I I know what it's like for me, and I can see I know what it was like for my mother and my sister and my nieces and um, the way that, that women are treated just haphazardly. You know, it, there, there's so many elements to being a person in this world that, you know, we would love to be ideal, but they're not. And it's tough, and you, you have to be strong, you have to be kind, and you have to be sensitive. Mm-hmm. And I would like to think those are attributes that she's taking on and she's growing in. 
um, because she'll need those tools as she gets older. I mean, plain and simple, she will need those um, if she's going to have any success whatsoever in this world. So it's important for me to impart that on her now so that she continues to, to understand that. She has a book I get to read to her every night about, uh, it's, I think it's 100 Rebel, 100 rebel Girls. Uh, it's 100 black women who have done it their own way. Mm-hmm. And I read a story from that book every night to her because, and then and it's the best when I get to, if like Ava DuVernay uh, was one of them we read recently and I showed her just a clip of one of her films. Uh, another one from last week was um, Aretha Franklin. And uh, my daughter has an Alexa in her room. So I got I said, Alexa, play Respect by Aretha Franklin. So I read the story and let that play while she listened. And she recognized she can make those connections now. And hopefully as she gets older, that'll be inside of her moving forward. Yeah. So as a father of a, a daughter, do you notice anything about women having a <laughs> daughter? Because I have a daughter as well, and I, I and also have boys and sons and so I see that like women mature faster yeah um, clearly they're much more intuitive and I'm like wow they're born that way oh yeah you know what I mean like all the characteristics well you know a lot of a lot of people say that um, women look for their father when they date or when they marry so for me that means a couple of different things um <laughs> <laughs> It's, I think about my previous relationship and I realize I'm like, oh man, you were looking for a cutthroat uh, businessman who, you know, would basically do anything to make it ahead in this world um, with no qualms whatsoever and at the same time, you know, be really funny. But um, when I look at my daughter and I think about that, I'm like, Please, Lord, do not let her look for me um, because... You need to put that in your comedy bit. I, I, I'm going to after that. I have to because I, I, I'm i not ashamed of myself. I, I like who I am and I like who I've become. Um, but I do not want to sit across the table from myself at Thanksgiving dinner and I, and try to be cool with this person. I'm like, absolutely not. No. <laughs> Um, I'm already selfish enough to think I'm the funniest one in the house. I don't need this other person coming in talking to my daughter with all the jokes and the charm um, and the smoothness. Absolutely not. I I actually, my plan for her was to not be able to date until she was 45. Um, and she was hopefully going to date an older woman in, in Florida. Um, that was where I was going with that. But she uh, she's funny. She automatically, she is starting to understand boys I guess in a way of saying that she she knows that they're they could be love interests um, and that's a little bit bothersome for me we were watching the the Carolina Tar Heels uh, make it to the NCAA tournament mm-hmm. or make it to the championship game my daughter fell in love with Brady Manic. do you know who Brady Manic is? do not Brady Manic was a transfer from Oklahoma to UNC for his, his last year of eligibility. Um, he is 6'9", 6'10", has really long blonde hair, which he normally puts up in like with a headband, and yeah. he has this long scraggly beard, and my daughter would see this man on television and would just lose it. I've never seen her with... I think that was in your comedy bit. At the... she, she just is just you know, shocked. She was like, I love him. I love him. He's, got, he's Chad. I love him. I'm like, why is anybody Chad? 
Like, yeah, he looks like a Chad, but I don't ever bring a Chad around here. Like, that's clearly trouble right there. At 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 best, Chad is like wearing sunglasses with the like backwards on his on his neck, and he's got you know this hat. He literally just got done playing eighteen holes while talking on the cell phone the whole time. Like that's Chad. I don't want Chad around me right now. Don't bring Chad to my house anytime soon. And she's like, No, I love him, Daddy. I love him. And so now I've got to go find Brady Manic and put him down. But um, <laughs> or invite him over for dinner. Nope, not happening. Um, <laughs> I didn't want to be that dad, but clearly I'm going to be, and I'm going to embrace it fully. Um, yeah, no, it, it's funny to see to see that and what you learn about um, the opposite sex in that regard. Well, I think that we're going to to stop right there mm-hmm. for the sake of time, yeah. and um, you know, I want to be respectful to yours and and, and the listeners as well. But I don't know if I told you we're going to do some rapid fire. You did not tell me that. Oh, boy. Yeah. Okay. This is my favorite part. I expected some surprises, so let's okay, go. Okay, yeah. Um We finish this interview, mm-hmm. and you step outside the studio, and you find a lottery ticket that ends up winning $10 million. Mm-hmm. What would you do? My daughter and I do Pizza Fridays. Every Friday I have her. I have her every other week. We would do a different Pizza Friday in a different city in the world for however long we possibly could on that money. Nice. Yeah. Every we Austin, New York, Paris, of course, Rome, whatever. I don't care. If you had one superpower, what would it be? To fly. Mm. Yeah. All right. In your best Valley Girl voice, tell me what you like to do on the weekends. Oh my God. I love <laughs> to just veg out in front of the TV and watch like hacks, or if I'm just like. If I'm just, like, cooking or if I'm, like, just standing around, I'll, like, throw some friends on because I am a big – I'm, like, a big Rachel. Like, I'm a Rach, you know, and I I identify um, even with the other hairstyle because, like, other people don't like it, but I think it's really cool, and I think that would really suit me back then in the 90s. I'd be really funny in the 90s, I think. That's good. That's good. <laughs> um, I'm ashamed I was, of myself that came out so easily. I, I had to, I had to like hold back because I was like, is he telling me what he really would do on the weekends? But no, no, you actually went into Valley Girl character, and I liked it. Uh, I liked that you took it there because it actually made it more interesting. Um, let's see the place you want to travel, the place you most want to travel to. <laughs> Las Vegas. Huh? You have not been? No, I have been. I just oh. I have to go all the time. <laughs> have you seen Eddie Griffin? I have not. Okay, no, I have not. That's funny you then say you that. you haven't been to Vegas. This, you're not the first person to say that to me. Okay. That's, that's so real. So when you go back, he only works, um, I think he works like, I want to say Wednesdays or his Fridays. He's still at the Rio, I think, isn't he? Is he still at the Rio? So he just moved. And oh, he I, did move. Okay. I thought he was not at the Sahara. He was at the New York, New York, I want to say, but he moved somewhere else. I'll find um, him. I just went in March, mm-hmm. and I tried to see him, but we flew in on a Wednesday, mm-hmm. and it wasn't going to work. It was yeah. like I'd br- I wanted to go out and, and to Red Rock Canyon instead. But um, I've seen him before, and like that's my number one recommendation when you go to Vegas. Done and done. But go on his Eddie last day of the week, which mm-hmm. I think is on a Wednesday because that's his Friday, mm-hmm. and he gets down. I'm done. I'm good with that. So we yeah. I we did the VIP experience where we're supposed to do a meet and greet mm-hmm. after the show, mm-hmm. which did not happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he drinks Patron 
and champagne. On stage, right? On stage yeah. and smoke cigarettes yeah. the entire time. Oh my God. But I've never, I, I don't know that I want to try Patron and champagne together in a cocktail. But anyway, he got loose mm-hmm. and he made this joke towards the end, right? Because he's only a two-hour show, but when mm-hmm. he's feeling it, he'll go on. I dig it. Yeah. So he it's past nine o'clock. He's still going and we're just like, yeah. Yeah. Like, keep it going. And he made this joke about God and that when he looks in the mirror, he sees God. Mm-hmm. And this woman in the audience, she had a, um, a whole entourage with her. She stood up and I, I thought she was having like an exorcism because she was like, ah, ah. <laughs> and I'm like, is she a plant? Like, what is going on? And then like her whole crew stands up and then like security come over and they're like escorting her out. And she's screaming, and he's screaming back, like, get the fuck out of here. You don't like my comedy? Get the fuck out. And I'm like, is this real? Like, did he plant this? Because it was, like, that yeah, crazy. Yeah, yeah. No. And then she le- and then he- she left, and he was like, the fuck was that? <laughs> and then he was like, I'm done. Oh, and then there was a woman in the front row. I just want to ask- I wanted to ask you about hecklers. Yeah, yeah. There was a woman in the front row all night long. Just like she would be like, I know that's right, yeah. yeah, and like everything he said, she would say that, and finally he was like, "Bitch, you gonna shut the fuck up or not?" <laughs> and he goes, "Do you see that sign outside? Yep, that's my name. Yep. this is my show. How about you shut the fuck up?" That's real. I was like, "Whoa!" And yeah. then he was like, "I'm done. I'm out." And he <laughs> mic dropped and peaced out, and we didn't get our meet and greet, and I was like. What the heck just happened? They ruined it for you. They did. So I want to go back and see him again. By far, he he improvs mm-hmm. his entire show. It's a new show every night. I love Eddie Griffin. Yeah. Hysterical. And bef- yeah. I mean, he's, he doesn't have that much longer. You know, I yeah. feel like... I would agree with you on that. Um, you need to see him before he's done. Yeah. He's one of my favorite comics. Um, I, I like Donnell, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like Cat Williams. I know there's a lot of haters for Cat Williams, but... I like his style. I've always liked Cat Williams. I just don't like that he sweats so much. Yeah. Like maybe he just it's don't profuse. do so much cocaine. <laughs> it is <laughs> profuse. That and wearing so many clothes on stage. He normally wears, like, all kinds of stuff all the time. That new special, he's got a headband on and a hat and a jacket and a long sleeve. Okay. That's a lot. <laughs> that, I, I like being comfy. And he, like, has a towel. Yeah, yeah. This, yep. And I'm just like... He must have to take a shower before and after. I mean, his blood pressure is just through the roof all the time. I'm like, maybe just lay off the um, amphetamines. Yeah, you know? agreed. Agreed. <laughs> yep. It's funny. Um, well, that was uh, probably a good place to end that. I, I probably had some more rapid-fire questions for you. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you about if you could have one person over for dinner, dead or alive, who would it be? Mm. One person over for dinner, dead or alive. That one, I it, it'd be Jay Z. Um, I've seen Jay Z live five times in different parts of the country. Um, I've always been a Jay Z fan because of his music. His live performances are amazing. Um, rap performances used to be incredibly basic with just a DJ microphone, and it was hard for people to understand how to translate that into a much larger space. Jay Z conquered that. And to see him and his the way he is with his crowds and whatnot was always mesmerizing. Um, but then, of course, business interests and family and just to be this mobile now, I would love to have him over just to pick his brain and to understand. Yeah, he's a much more calmer 
person these days, I feel like. Yeah, he's, he's probably. Got, he's well grounded. He seems that way for sure. I, I certainly hope that is the case. Um, come a long way from, you know, allegedly, you know, smacking someone in the face of a champagne bottle. Oh, um, what was that? Who was the alleged I person? I don't, I maybe kind of remember the name, but I'm not going to say it right now. <laughs> Well, it was a male. It was not. Um, and this person is 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 and was famous. Um, and, and the time period was known to be an instigator and a lot of other things. So it was um, a woman. Uh-huh, 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 yeah. Oh, so there, but allegedly, those are stories from back in the day. Well, he allegedly, something happened in the elevator with Rihanna? Nope, no, that wait. was Beyonce and Solange. Oh, that's right. So See, Solange that's, but it was about Rihanna. Maybe some people say it was about Rihanna. Some people say it was about um, I can't remember the other one. The whoever uh, allegedly Beyonce refers to as Becky with the good hair uh, on that Lemonade album. Some people say it's about that. Uh, Jay Z allegedly stabbed someone in a club in 1996 or seven. Um, so there are a lot of those things. Um, but we all have rumors about us. Maybe when you have them over for dinner, you could kind of clear the air on those. If he is Sign willing, an NDA. Yeah, exactly, yes. I'm sure there'll be multiple NDAs. Yeah. yeah. Um, but regardless, I would still love to talk to him about all of those things and just how to navigate all of that, because that's, that's a lot. All right, well, what's next for MT? Um, July 3rd is a big show for me. Um, it's live in C-Color. Um, this is our second edition of that. It's a variety show where we bring comedy and music and other acts together at Dead Crow Comedy Room. That's a really big show because we're looking for that to be an experience that goes on long term. Um, so really excited about that. That's something that uh, I'm producing with a partner, Lewis T Media. Um, I've got North Carolina Comedy Festival coming up in September. Um, a couple of other things like that that I can't talk about yet that hopefully will be out in the world soon. Um, but ultimately, in the next two years, I'm going to perform in Vegas. I want to be on TV. Those are my two big goals for the next two years. So hopefully you'll get to see me in those spaces. Not hopefully we will because you just marked your word right here. There it is. I put it out in the universe on the Hourglass podcast. That's where that's when stuff happens. That's right. You have to believe it's already happened. Yeah. It's already happened. I agree with you. Yeah. You just waiting for it. All right, so how do people connect with you? How can they find your comedy, your trivia, follow you? Follow me on Instagram, mtbottlescomedy um, is my handle on IG. Also, Homegrown Trivia. You can find all my trivia-based stuff uh, there. Also on Facebook, of course, if people still use that, mtbottles on Facebook. Uh, drop me a line, uh, message me, DM me, whatever the case may be. Come to my shows. Um, I put everything on there. And, of course, there's always my website, which is mtbottlescomedy.com. Great. And uh, let's leave everybody with your best advice for listeners. Best advice I can ever give a person. Um, time is an illusion. Um, you may feel like you've gotten to a point in your life age-wise that, you know, something has passed you by, a goal or an ambition or whatever the case may be. It's never too late. Time is, is just a complete illusion. Um, don't let time be the thing that holds you back from anything in life. It's it's not worth it. Go ahead and do what it is that you want to do. Don't let time hold you back. Mm, I like that. Yeah. It definitely resonates with me. Well, I can't thank you enough for uh, 
coming to the studio. Pleasure is all this mine, with me. Really. I hope all of our listeners and those watching enjoyed it as well. Definitely. Uh, you know what to do. If you want to connect with MT, we'll put everything in the show notes. Um, definitely give him a follow. Check out his comedy. If you like this podcast and you feel like sharing it with your friends, your family, that is the best gift that you can give us. Um, subscribe. Give us a like. And um, stay tuned. We've got lots of good guests on, on the way. Awesome. All right. We'll see you all soon. Take Thank care. You.